Okay, so uh, what's that? What's that? Um, it might be um, it might be worthwhile. Uh, you won't have to take that many notes. There won't be that much on uh, of what I'm going to talk about today that I'll actually like test you on or whatever. But um, and also the. Uh, contents of the lecture um, are going to be on the podcast too so you can always catch it later um, so uh, I'm just going to talk for an hour about um, historically how uh, abnormality has been conceived and how it's um, been approached and treated and um, in order to do that we have to sort of talk about this, um, the, the range of mental functioning that we have, right? How broad the range is of um, functioning. Because, for example, um, we can all probably pretty much conceive of what we would say is normal behavior, right? Um, first of all, what does that imply? Normal. The root word being norm. Standard. Routine. Um, norm. When you think of norms, uh, think of sociology and social psychology. Social norms. Social and cultural norms, right? So within any given culture, what is considered normal is going to be uh, perhaps quite different from any other uh, culture, right? Um, so we've got this idea of normal. But then there's another term that we have for a little bit different behavior, right? We call this eccentric behavior. So eccentric behavior is um, people who engage in behavior that most other people don't engage in but it doesn't have any particular negative uh, repercussions for them, right? Um, you know, Howard Hughes was um, considered eccentric, partly because he was wealthy enough that, um, you know, he had people who could cover for him when he was not able to function well, you know. Um, so ex eccentricity oftentimes comes along with wealth. If you're wealthy, you might be considered eccentric. If you're poor, you might be considered abnormal. If you're, um, uh, if you're older, you might be considered eccentric. If you're younger, you might be considered rebellious or disruptive or something, right? So our conception of normality is affected by how we perceive other people, right? how we perceive our status in relationship to them. Um, and then there's another level of functioning that you have probably heard this term, dysfunctional. Right? Dysfunctional meaning not functional or not optimally functional. Right? Dysfunctional behavior. So you've probably all heard the term uh, dysfunctional relationship, right? I'm in a dysfunctional relationship. Yeah, my family is dysfunctional. Yeah, um, probably all of our families are dysfunctional. Um, and so this is the notion that it's not functioning quite right. There's something a little bit wrong with it. Um, when we talk about, uh, for example, when we talk about depression, one of the minor um, levels of depression that we'll talk about is dysthymia. It's slightly not right. It's not that you're in a full-blown uh, major depressive disorder, but you're not quite functioning well enough to be called normal, so we say it's dysthymia. Same thing with dysfunctional. You're not quite functioning well enough um, to be called normal, but you're not, you know, really... Um, seriously hurting each other or, or yourself, right? 
And then we might have another level of functioning that we might call neurotic. What does it mean to be neurotic? I talked about my neuroses earlier. What is that? What comes along with neuroses, neurosis or neurotic behavior? Yeah. Emotional instability, um, oftentimes anxiety, right? And um, Freud talked about neurosis and neurotic behavior. Um, and part, remember in uh, Freudian uh, theory, Freud's theory of <clears throat> personality functioning went something like this. The heck is wrong with that? Um, you remember he had uh, the ego, and the ego had to mediate between the two opposing forces, the id and superego, right? Good. And both of these are putting pressure on the ego to do what they want. And when this pressure is too much and the ego can't manage and mediate properly, then what pops out, he said, is anxiety and neurosis. And so um, neurotic behavior tends to be, it's, it's a little bit less functional than dysfunctional. Uh, the neurosis and the anxiety may overwhelm you. Um, for example, when somebody gets up and leaves in the middle of my lecture and I start, my little voice starts telling me that I'm a loser and I shouldn't be a teacher anymore. And then the rest of the lecture, I um, keep stumbling on my words and I don't know what I'm saying. And um, maybe I have to let end the lecture early because I'm obsessed with these thoughts, right? So that's going to be definitely causing me trouble. So this is sort of levels of difficulty that it's sort of causing the individual or maybe the people around the individual. And the sort of ultimate um, level of maladaptive or, or lack of functional behavior is what we'll call abnormal or more precisely uh, psychotic behavior, right? So um, in the little in the film that we just watched, um, what was the uh, college student's name? Naomi. Naomi, that's right. Uh, you know, she was definitely exhibiting psychotic symptoms. Um, voices, hearing voices, are definitely psychotic symptoms. Major depressive disorder is considered um, psychotic. Um, this tends to be associated more with dissociative kind of disorders and schizophrenic disorders and less with um, maybe depression or, um, but it's definitely associated with manic depressive disorder. So, so this is the stuff that we're going to be dealing mostly with in this class. Um, the kinds of behaviors that cause people a whole lot of trouble in their functioning. So then um, we've got normal and then abnormal and then all this gray area uh, in between. So then that brings us to the question of how is it that we're going to go about deciding whether your particular behavior is normal or abnormal, right? Um, as I said, partly that's going to be a function of culture. What behavior is normal in one culture may be abnormal in another. For example, uh, you know, in some cultures, uh, disfiguring your skin, self-mutilation by causing scarring on your skin in certain patterns is considered normal and, in fact, beautiful. In this culture, that would be considered abnormal and probably, um, you know, your parents would send you to the psychiatrist to find out why you're hurting yourself, right? Um, but when we talk about normality to abnormality, I think that there's another, that I think that there's, a fun, there's some fundamental features that we can use to determine whether something is really um, abnormal. And partly this comes down to the idea of adaptiveness. Is a behavior adaptive? What does it mean to 
engage in adaptive behaviors. What does adaptivity mean? Okay, so the, well, let's, let's just step back from that second part and say the ability to alter your behavior. Um, what else? Anything else? So maybe the ability to alter your behavior as a coping mechanism for situational demands or, or, or situations that you're in. Social experience. Think about... Um, Evolution. Yeah. What does it mean in evolution to be adaptive? It means to have the behavioral traits or perhaps the physical phenotypes, the physical uh, characteristics that allow you to survive to reproduction. And that's the whole goal is to get you to reproduction and get those genes going to continue in the gene pool, right? So um, so the degree to which something a behavior is adaptive is going to be very helpful to us. It helps us to survive and to thrive, as we said. So behaviors that we consider normal may actually be the result of natural selection. You know, engaging in behaviors that are pro-social probably allows you to engage in sexual activity with um, with other members of the species and that is going to allow those genes to survive, right? Um, so one of the things we have to consider when we consider abnormality is just how maladaptive is the behavior. To what degree does the behavior uh, make it unlikely that you're going to be able to adapt and to change and to thrive and to survive. Um, as I said, um, maladaptiveness is going to be partly culturally determined, but it's also going to be environmentally determined because as your environment changes, your physical environment or your social environment, your behavior has to change, has to adapt to fit these new physical and social environments. So it's kind of partly adaptivity is about being flexible. How flexible is your behavior? Um, so um, one of the problems that we think about is that some what we call normal behaviors actually can be maladaptive, right? Can you think of any examples of normal behaviors that might be mallet, yeah. Oh, wow, okay. considered normal in this culture. Having the latest electronics is considered normal. Or getting a new car regularly is considered normal. And that's a mark of success. But it's in some ways maladaptive in the sense that, you know, it's not sustainable. Right? Yeah. Good. So, um, but the thing is that um, these behaviors, some of the behaviors that are considered normal that actually are maladaptive may be a function of uh, genes that cause other behaviors that are adaptive, right? So when we start thinking about genetics and um, evolution, some of the, uh, for example, the gene that is associated with um, sickle cell anemia uh, also endows uh, immunity or, or resistance to malaria. And so you take out the sickle cell anemia gene and you get people that are susceptible to malaria. So there's the, this idea that these genes that may cause somewhat abnormal or, or maladaptive things may also have adaptive or, or, or positive benefits. 
And so that's one of the issues of, gee, if we could find the gene that causes, take your pick, alcoholism, and we could just take that out, that would be great, right? Well, maybe not, because we don't know what other qualities that that gene may have with it that may be adaptive, right? So it's um, it becomes a, a bit of a slippery slope when we talk about genetic engineering and fixing psychological disorders or uh, or mental illness with genetic engineering. But we can talk. We'll talk more about about that too. Yeah. yeah. Sure, sure. Yeah, so um, fortunately, most of the, it's, it's very hard to cause um, damage to germ cells, um, uh, to the DNA of germ cells. So we don't, we don't generally affect those things at the genetic level in terms of passing on genes as a result of current treatments, although radiation-based treatments have a lot of problems with that. But um, but you're right. Putting powerful drugs in someone's system does have you know very profound effects on the uh, biomolecular uh, level, and we are just beginning to kind of understand how complex biomolecular uh, uh, science is. You know, it's it's really we're really on the frontier of that stuff. So, yeah, that's a good point. So there are some medications that have a discontinuance effect or a, uh, uh, a syndrome. Yeah, that you're sort of worse off in the long run. Uh, I think that um, that uh, Frontline show was uh, one of the people that had been treated uh, at a young age um, had re had. Um, like uh, he got stiff neck and involuntary neck movements, and so, um, so yes, yeah, so some drugs actually have these sort of longer-lasting effects on uh, neurologic functions. So yeah. Um, so when we think about um, normality, your book um, is going to bring up sort of these three features that we think we want to evaluate when we think is a behavior really abnormal or not. And so the first feature that they talk about in your book is deviance. How deviant is the behavior? How much does it deviate from social norms? And how much does it deviate from what's culturally acceptable, right? So I say it's culturally relative in the sense that in one culture, a behavior might be considered deviant, like self-mutilation. In another culture, it may be considered desirable, right? Um, second feature that your book talks about is discomfort. How much discomfort does this behavior cause to the individual who's uh, exhibiting the behavior or even to the people that are around that individual? So um, how much psychological or even physical discomfort does, uh, does it take on? And this is a feature that's going to become important in terms of the DSM, the intensity and the duration of that discomfort. For example, in the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual for psych Psychiatric Disorders, um, for Psychological Disorders, it uh, often specifies that the person has to have experienced these symptoms for X number of months, right? Uh, or um, continuously for a two-week period within any six-month period, right? And so um, intensity and duration is important to, to think about in terms of discomfort. And then dysfunction. How maladaptive is the behavior? Is it a behavior that is useful, that helps us survive and thrive? Or is it a behavior that, for example, keeps us from going to work? 
you know, I can't get up out of bed and go to work because I'm convinced I feel worthless and empty and hollow. And so uh, this gets at sort of role expectations. We all have roles that we play in the lives of other people around us and in the society in general. And to what degree can we fulfill these role expectations? If we can't fulfill those role expectations, then we might consider the behavior uh, dysfunctional or maladaptive. If, I, if one of my roles is to be a parent and I can't take care of my children, that's dysfunctional, right? But if I'm not a parent, it doesn't matter, right? So there's a lot of social kind of uh, expectation, social kind of normality, senses of normality. It's all in this social cultural context that we have to start thinking about abnormality, yeah? Yeah. Right, right. Um, their, their behavior would be considered deviant. Uh, on the other hand, you have to also look then at how much dysfunction it causes them. You know, their deviance may actually be functional in their subcultural group, right? So um, I don't know, like what this like goth stuff, right? Like that's deviant. Like that's not going to be very functional in a corporate boardroom. But in a particular subcultural group like artists or musicians or something, that's functional. So, again, it's very relative. Yeah. Right, right. In a lot of ways it is. It is like that. And it's sort of the irony of, you know, teenagers who want to be um, nonconformist, right? They just wind up conforming to the behavior of some other smaller group of people, really, is what happens. Yeah. Um, so culture, culture, culture. Um, it's all, it's all going to be tied in. Um, we can't ever take that part out of it. And that's a bit of a problem, because uh, what we have in order to diagnose uh, disorders in the United States is the a Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of the American Psychiatric Association. If we take those diagnostic categories and try to apply them to somebody in Germany, or well, Germany is probably not so bad, but somebody maybe in Asia or somebody in Africa or somebody in even South America, um, those cultures have very different social norms, very different role expectations, and very different experiences of normality and abnormality. So um, that's one of the criticisms of the DSM, uh, especially as the United States becomes more multicultural, right? And people are um, bringing their culture. Uh, you know, it's sort of the idea was that um, uh, 70, 80 years ago, the expectation was that immigrants would um, adopt quote-unquote American culture when they emigrated here. But that's changing. They're starting to keep their, uh, their home cultures much more. And so that starts to bring in problems of diagnosis when someone comes in whose uh, home culture is different than American culture. Um, but we'll talk more about that when we talk about diagnosis and assessment. Yeah. Yeah, the the other the other the sort of competing option to the DSM is what's called the um, ICD, the International Classification of Disorders. I think it's the ICD-10 or something, and um, that takes into account much more uh, variations in culture when it does its diagnostics. Um, so uh, you know, when people are getting clinical training now they are um, trained in recognizing that, gee, this may be a culture-bound syndrome rather than, a, um, uh, rather than something that uh, we consider uh, abnormal, yeah. And then I feel like 
There's. Yes, they do. Um, but what happens is, uh, for example, depression is a classic case. Depression in in North America, we have um, what uh, what we would classify as a very individualist culture in North America. Contrast that with culture in Japan. Culture in Japan is very collectivistic. Um, whereas one emphasizes the individual, the other emphasizes the individual as a part of this group. And the, and the individual's dysfunction causes trouble for the larger group and so it tends to want to, it tends to be exhibited differently. So what we see in North America is depression. We see people becoming very sort of withdrawn emotionally, um, very sad, very um, worthless. They kind of uh, have this real psychological experience. Yeah. But then in, Jap in Japan, in Asian uh, cultures, more collectivist cultures, what we tend to see in depression particularly is more physiological symptoms, headaches, physical aches, physical body problems. And so um, it's more acceptable in those cultures for that set of symptoms to exist. Um, well, partly that's true. Um, and it, yeah, and, and I think the the awareness and plus the um, you know the drug companies uh, have a lot to do with that. With uh, now having advertisements on television for medications for disorders, you know, we're bombarded with it. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know the rates in the general population, any one disorder, the highest rates are somewhere around 15% of the general population. Um, but when you consider that, you know, you've got multiple possible disorders, it starts adding up, yeah. So um, let's talk now about what happens when um, people uh, expect that you might be abnormal. And how does that color their perceptions of you? How does that begin to have them look at you differently, right? And so um, to talk about this, we uh, I like to bring up the Rosenhan uh, experiment. Uh, David, I think it's David Rosenhan, is a uh, what is was I think he is a, a psychiatrist. And um, he wrote an article uh, in, that was published, I think, in Science, the journal Science, uh, or, or Nature, I'm not sure which. And I'm giving you a copy of this article. It's called On Being Sane uh, in Insane Places. And here's uh, what he did in this experiment. I would like you to read this article, by the way. Um, it's not, it's not real intense reading. It's actually quite readable. So here's what Rosenhan did. Um, he and seven of his colleagues, most of them uh, either psychiatrists, psychologists, or other sort of academics. These are people with um, high, high level of education. Uh, uh, presented themselves at, medical at mental hospitals around the country. Um, both private and public hospitals. And they were to tell the um, admitting staff that they heard three words being repeated, thud, hollow, and empty. Um, and what happened was all eight of them were actually diagnosed uh, with schizophrenia and admitted to the hospital and started treatment for schizophrenia. These are not, these by, this by itself is not in any way a symptom of schizophrenia, by the way. Um, in every other way, they were instructed to tell the admitting staff their entire medical and social and family history, 
you know, without any embellishment. That was, you know, they were just going to tell the truth. Um, but they still wound up all being diagnosed. Rosenhan didn't think it was going to be like that. Um, and especially, you know, he was one of the subjects in the experiment. So he didn't want to get admitted. Um, and uh, immediately upon uh, admission, uh, they were to tell the admitting staff that um, they didn't actually hear the voices anymore and that they otherwise their behavior was to be completely normal. So uh, any guesses or those of you who already know, don't say it, but how long do you think it took them to get out? Huh? Months? Actually, in some cases, yeah. Um, the shortest time was seven days. The longest was uh, 52, almost, five, almost two months. They, uh, they gave them medication. Uh, they successfully avoided taking the medication. Yeah, that's, that's real critical. Oh, okay. I don't remember that. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, now, um, the interesting thing is they went back and looked at the case uh, notes after after the experiment was over. You know, they would go up to the uh, to the nurses and the doctors and say, um, you know what? I'm actually part of a research study at Stanford University, and I'm not really crazy. And right, you laugh. Exactly. That's what the doctors and nurses said. Yeah, sure. That's part of your. It's obviously part of your psychosis, because normal behaviors were then interpreted as being part of the disorder. Um, for example, if they were taking notes, that was considered to be symptomatic of the paranoid nature of the disorder. Um, they would wait outside the cafeteria because there was nothing else to do but wait for lunch and dinner. And uh, while one of the doctors was coming around in rounds with the residents, he would point to the, the patients waiting by the uh, cafeteria and he'd say, this is classic symptoms of the oral acquisitive nature of the psychiatric disorder, right? And so, um, so then all of a sudden your normal behavior starts being seen in a very different light, right? It's in the context of the disorder. Um, so it's, a, it's really kind of amazing how powerful that label, that diagnostic label can be um, on other people's perceptions of you. Um, and what will happen actually is people will begin starting, so this, will, this has been shown in other experiments, people will begin starting to act according to the expectations of the people who are expecting them to act in certain ways. So this is very powerful social influence stuff. Um, Even though the doctors and nurses couldn't see it, the other patients who were in there were oftentimes would come up to them and say, um, you're not crazy. You don't belong here. You're a reporter, right? right. And so um, what's really fascinating is these other patients, without their sort of perceptions being clouded by the diagnostic label, go, um, you know what? Um, I don't think you're, you belong here. Yeah. So I encourage you to read this article. Um, it also goes on into a second study where he shows what happens in terms of stigma, how you're treated when, uh, for example, he has a female um, undergraduate, I think, or graduate student uh, walk into a hospital and um, the first doctor, I think, that they encounter, they ask the doctor for... Um, directions to either uh, the internists, you know, medical specialist's office, or a, the psychiatrist's office. And depending on which one they asked to see, the behavior of the doctor was very different toward them. In one, they were very helpful when they were looking for the internist. When they looked for the psychiatrist, there was very little eye contact. You know, they were very quick to brush them off and try to, you know, get them out of their uh, periphery as soon as possible. 
So these diagnostic labels have powerful effects on other people's behavior toward you, and their behavior toward you is going to affect your behavior and your uh, perception of yourself even. So, um, so yeah, I'll encourage you to read that article. It's, it's really quite good. Um, e, um, well, what, ha what is interesting, well, I don't know, but what is interesting is um, after release, uh, when it, it did become clear that these people did not have a disorder, uh, they were released with schizophrenia in remission. And even after this article was published, those records were never changed. So the diagnostic label stays with you. Yes, yes, it was highly criticized, and it and it was. It had methodological problems. That's, you know. So, but did you read the part where he said that uh, that he would do that again, and uh, he told different hospitals and that? Yeah, he did try to replicate it um, later on, and it and it, it came out differently. Um, so he actually had an effect. were real patients. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's as part of that article. That's in there too. So, yeah. Yeah, so the, um, you know, if you tell people that you're going to send in a pseudo patient, they'll start seeing patients who are abnormal as being normal. Yeah. 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 Um, okay, so let's uh, talk about um, over time uh, how we've dealt with questions of the causes of uh, mental illness or abnormality. Well, certainly the first um, proposed cause of mental illness or abnormality was uh, supernatural explanations. Uh, I was just teaching my intro psych course yesterday and we were talking about um, primitive philosophy about the soul. Is you know the soul some sort of ethereal being that exists separate from the body or is it integral and part of the body? Um, and certainly um, in supernatural explanations, the soul is this kind of ethereal uh, force that exists separate from the body. Um, and in the case of mental illness, it was proposed that there was some force from outside the person that was causing these um, uh, bizarre and disturbed behaviors. So uh, demonic possession, for example, right? So uh, a, a second uh, explanation, which came later generally, although we see evidence of somatogenic explanations in uh, Egyptian uh, writing, is um, the idea that um, there's some sort of bodily cause for disturbed behavior. And so now, uh, you know, these are the current sort of explanations. We're in a phase where we're thinking of somatogenic uh, causes of behavior. So dysfunctions in the brain, uh, maybe abnormalities in brain structure or um, neurotransmitter abnormalities, right? Um, depression, for example, is uh, considered to be at least partly caused by uh, a um, lack of serotonin neurotransmitters. Um, uh, hormones and genetics are now um, very much being studied in terms of how they affect uh, abnormality. And then uh, there's the third proposed cause will be psychogenic, that it comes um, from the mind but that, that, that it's not coming from some sort of weird external influence, but rather it's this, um, the experiences that the person goes through that may cause the behavior. So when you think about this, think about childhood experiences and maybe think about the uh, psychodynamic perspective and the psychoanalytic perspective where uh, disruptions in behavior are caused by mothers who don't mother properly. Um, uh, there, there was this term, and I'll introduce it when we talk about schizophrenia. Uh, 
there was a term uh, for the mothering style that produced schizophrenia, that if you had a child who had schizophrenia, uh, you were a schizophrenogenic mother. Genic, uh, you know, the root there being cause, genesis cause, the, the, the mother caused the schizophrenia, right? Yeah. It's very troubling. Yeah. And this is, you know, this is partly where Freud gets his uh, reputation for being uh, sort of a misogynist or being at least um, sexist. But think about uh, just recently in the news, was it a week or two ago? Hold on a second. A week or two ago, uh, I was listening to the news and there's some uh, quarterback who has a girlfriend and uh, he, the, he they lost the game because the girlfriend was in the stands. And it's like, where were the feminists going, what? <laughs> you know, where are you? <laughs> where were the women going, you are out of your mind? <laughs> you, know, it's, you know, it's very, very misogynistic. And in, in a, in, and it really disturbed me when I thought about, like, what, you're going to blame his losing the game on the woman? Right. Um, I don't know all the details. Yeah. So, statistically, you know, quarterbacks do have the worst games of their lives, and girlfriends happen to be in the stands. Um, it's still it's still being reported. Yeah. No. In fact, the girlfriend said she's not going to go to any more games. <laughs> so um, so it's you know this is the this is you know very sort of disturbing and it was it was it's rightly um, attributed to Freud that he you know he did have his theories that were very misogynistic and sexist, but of course he was living in a cultural paradigm at the time where that was quote unquote acceptable. Yeah. Um, How do you feel about the schizophrenogenic uh, uh, parents that do that to their children? Uh, maybe uh, they no longer believe that it, it, that's the cause of something like schizophrenia, but it can definitely bring it, bring it out or make it worse mm -hmm. if you have a predisposition for mm -hmm. schizophrenia or Yeah. So what we know now of genetic predisposition, you could say that the mother may have had, you know, may have passed on a genetic predisposition. Uh, but we'll talk a little bit later when we talk about the biopsychosocial model, the idea that it's not only the biological predisposition, but the social um, experiences and environment. Sure, sure, that's true. Yep, yep. Um, yes, and uh, the degree of um, genetic influence on psychological disorders varies, but it, it tends to be quite strong, particularly in uh, schizophrenia, um, and um, somewhat lesser, but still very strong in bipolar disorder. Yeah. Um, then uh, also remember that when we're dealing with the psychogenic perspective, we're dealing with the psychodynamic, um, the idea that we have these subconscious motivations, that it's the unconscious, these, that these disorders arise from uh, unresolved sexual conflicts in childhood, right? Um, so uh, Freud's patients had somatoform disorders. Uh, he called them conversion disorders where they would have uh, glove anesthesia. They would lose uh, all the feeling in a hand or uh, a limb, uh, sometimes lose eyesight. And through uh, treatment, through uh, free association, he would allow these women, because his clients were all women, to regain their, um, their faculties. 
And he uh, invariably found that there were repressed sexual conflicts that were causing these disorders. Well, guess what? Victorian, you know, the Victorian period when women were very repressed sexually anyway. Um, yeah, so. Uh, and then uh, the psychogenic perspective also proposes that abnormal behaviors can be learned behaviors, um, that they may be things that we learn to do. Uh, you know, this is supported by, for example, simple phobias are oftentimes considered to be classically conditioned. We learn them as a result of associations and pairings. Uh, so, so supernatural, somatogenic, and uh, psychogenic. Uh, questions, ideas before I move on? What do we do with people who are mentally ill? Give them electric shocks, psychosurgery, uh, powerful antipsychotic drugs, um, therapy maybe. Ah, very good. Um, yeah, we push them aside, right? They're inconvenient in the culture, right? Um, we put them in jail. Increasingly, jails are being populated by uh, people with uh, psychological disorders. So um, let's talk about what historically we've done with people with mental disorders. When you've got the supernatural uh, perspective on these disorders, then it's fairly likely um, that you're going to consider being good is somehow given to you by the divine, right? Um, and that madness, on the other hand, is considered a smite some sort of, you know, you're being stricken by God because you're somehow evil or uh, unworthy. Um, so uh, typically what happened was uh, if people exhibited these really bizarre behaviors, they said, well, they're obviously possessed by Satan, and so we'll have to do some sort of exorcism ritual. Um, now, you know, it sounds kind of funny, but, um, you know, this is, you know, we're talking here uh about you know things like traditional healing rituals in all cultures all over the world have these exorcism rituals um, you know and it continued into European culture uh, if the exorcism uh, didn't work then obviously you were being punished by God and you must really be evil so um, you're awfully close to Satan and we'll have to uh, get rid of you because we can't have people around who are close to Satan. So this is uh, obviously a very difficult time to be mentally ill. Um, uh, you know, the exorcism rituals probably did help a lot of people, uh, if not by some, you know, physical change in their body, by their belief that they were getting better. You know, that the, the effect of placebo effects can't be understated here. Um, placebo effects are real and they do have power so uh, but a lot of them were ultimately um, banished ostracized if you're ostracized at this time uh, you have no social support um, you know you're sent off into the woods and basically you die because you can't live by yourself in the woods or in the desert so um, okay let's turn to yeah yeah Yeah. Right. That's a good question. So uh, why wouldn't that um, cause enough of a change in the genetic profile if we take these people out of the breeding pool? Well, they may have already had children by then, for one thing, because some of these disorders, uh, for example, schizophrenia, sometimes will occur in late adolescence. Well, you're reproducing by 1450. Right. Or even if it doesn't occur till late adolescence, you have even longer to reproduce. So that's one explanation. Another explanation is that, you know, you may have the genetic predisposition, but you don't, the symptoms don't emerge. 
until you're in such a situation that uh, that you don't have the coping mechanisms. That's the biopsychosocial explanation that we currently use. So there's a lot of possibilities for why that could carry through. Or they may have been adaptive in the past um, in some way. Um, somatogenic, basically um, we have either psychosurgery or medication. So that's essentially what we saw in the movie. Um, if we consider the, the disorders to come from some physiological problem, then uh, we either fix the physiological problem through surgery or try to fix it through medication or um, electricity, I guess. Um, the psychogenic explanation uh, relies on the idea that um, there's nothing wrong physically with the person. They're not, you know, uh, possessed by evil spirits. Then uh, we should be able to help them through changing their situation, maybe changing their environment. And so what was really popular uh, in Europe was the spa treatments. When someone became depressed or neurotic or overly anxious, uh, as long as they had the resources, they could go off to one of the spas in Europe and um, rejuvenate themselves with the rejuvenating waters of the spas, right? Um, but now uh, we're more likely to do things like um, uh, learning and conditioning, retraining for new behaviors, and then talk therapy, which really derives out of Freud's um, uh, free association therapy. Um, you know, we kind of give Freud short shrift because his theories are, are largely untestable through scientific methods. But the therapeutic methods he developed in free association uh, we see as carrying through to uh, contemporary therapeutic methods. So he's very important in that regard. So depending on what sort of perspective you take on where these disorders are coming from, that's going to determine how you approach the disorder, the cause of the disorder, and then ultimately the treatment uh, of the disorder. Um, so let's, now that we've looked at different um, explanations, let's look at um, through time historically how these things have been dealt with. Uh, in prehistory, uh, we have evidence of uh, trephination. Anybody know what trephination is? They were trephine, they were trephining, uh, what was the photographer's name in the movie? Gordon? Glenn? Yeah, they were trephining Glenn's skull. They were drilling a hole in his skull. And um, in prehistory, we have evidence of holes that were, look to be intentionally drilled. These are very different than the kinds of holes that will uh, be caused by, for example, a spear or some other um, traumatic injury. Um, and so trephination appears to be a way to open up holes in the skull. Why is obviously unknown because it was prehistory, so there's no recorded history. Um, but we do see evidence of this in skulls uh, very old, um, uh, you know, really before we have any kind of medical treatment. So um, There's still some debate about whether it was uh, treatment or physical injury, but for the most part, the nature of the way that the holes uh, look and the placement of the holes seems to indicate that it's probably treatment related, yeah. Yeah, uh, but it continued. Um, and in fact, um, there are some people now who um, propose trephination, not reputable uh, physicians and psychiatrists, but um, you actually can buy trephination tools now. Um, yeah, it's a little bit scary. I didn't see that. Isn't it 
Wow. Wow. I don't remember. Wow. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I don't remember that. Crazy. Right. Very good. Yeah, so different cultures had different concepts of sort of where the soul was or where the mind was, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, in fact, fact, if you do get some sort of traumatic injury, uh, the dura, you know, the, the, the dura and the lining of your skull will begin to swell up the cerebrospinal fluid starts to swell and it causes pressure on the brain and the only way to relieve that is to drill a hole and let some of the fluid out so you know these these this trephination does have some legitimate um, uh, uh, uses so it's difficult to know if this was really intended as a treatment for mental illness is what the point is yeah um, moving up a little bit in time uh, the first recorded um, proposal for somatogenic causes comes from uh, Egypt, Uh, but we also see somatogenic explanations in Greek rationalism. Uh, Greek rationalism proposed that, um, you know what, Uh, contrary to the supernatural explanation, the world can be understood from a naturalistic perspective. We can understand the world and we can understand how the world works. Um, And Greek rationalism also said what's really important is what you do in your life now, not what's going to happen in the afterlife. So it really places existence in a much more sort of here and now experience rather than the supernatural experience of the afterlife. And uh, uh, so that really led to the idea that the body, our physical body, is the existence that's important right now and um, the glorification of how the body works, which helps with the evolution of the idea of medicine, which comes from uh, Hippocrates, and the medical model, which will be developed quite a bit later, but he begins the notion of the medical model, that you observe symptoms, um, classify groups of symptoms and patients who have groups of symptoms, and uh, look for some cause in the body rather than in the spirits or in the ethers, right? Um, Now, you know, they were doing this, and one of the things that was proposed was the idea that there were these bodily humors, these uh, fluids and gases that moved in the body, And if they were out of balance somehow, that would cause behavioral disruptions or medical problems. Um, And so depression was uh, thought to be caused by having too much of this black bile, Um, whereas uh, if you had too much of the yellow bile, then you had um, anxiety problems. And so this is really an attempt to try to pin down these behavioral issues, these psychological disorders, to a a somatogenic cause, something in the body that's causing a problem. And of course, that's how we look at uh, disorders now. So, um, you know, this thinking goes way back. It's not as if we just sort of came up with uh, this idea of uh, bodily uh, functions and imbalances in neurotransmitter hormones, right? I mean, this this is not far from neurotransmitter and hormone imbalances, which is one of the things that we attribute uh, psychological disorders to. They did have a wacky uh, idea, which was um, that hysteria was caused by what? Do you remember? Anybody remember? I think I intro. Did I tell you about this? Um, hysteria, you know what, what it means to be hysterical, sort of out of control and, um, you know, crying and that sort of thing. Uh, that was considered, it was a woman's disease, and it was considered to arise from the uterus becoming detached 
and wandering around in the abdomen and causing problems with other organs, right? Um, and so, <laughs> yeah, I mean, just really kind of wacky kind of stuff. But guess what? In 2,000 years, we're going to look back at, you know, serotonin neurotransmitter disruptions and go, what? What were they thinking? Right. You know, we're sort of this is at the time, this is the best possible explanation that they could come up with. Just like right now, we have the best possible explanations and the best possible treatments that we can conceive of right now with the knowledge we have right now. So, um, you know, so I, I sort of look back at this and I go, that's really wacky. But, you know, this is not far off of what we think now. So it's not, you know, some of this stuff may not be as wacky as it seems. Um, that. Yeah, there you go. That must be it. The bladder's starting to wander around. Um, okay, so that's all we have time for today. We'll pick up with this uh, uh, next time and talk about medieval approaches. Um, so, chapter one and two, and uh, the Rosenhan article, and I'll see you then. Oh, yes, I'm sorry. Cheers. What's that? Yeah.